0: Good morning, how's everybody this morning? All right, it's good to be with you, good to be with you. We will be in Luke chapter 11 today as we continue to feast upon the bread of life, one verse at a time, for man is not supposed to live on bread alone, but what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God, amen chapter 11, verses 29 through 32. I have an ESV is what I preach out of. I've been preaching out of it ever since I've been um, a pastor, really, or in in Christian leadership. And um, my Bible has headers uh, as as you go through the Word. And so the header in my Bible says the sign of Jonah. So that is what we will look at today, is the sign of Jonah. I do not forget that Parkway Baptist Church is a church that is driven by the Word of God, transformed by the Spirit of God, and sent by the Son of God to make disciples of all nations. That's what we're here to do. We want to see people built up in the Word of God to become formed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, to find other people that will respond to the gospel for them to be formed more and more into what? The image of Jesus Christ. Christ's likeness is the ultimate goal of the Christian and to be missional uh, with, that, with that effort as we are driven by the Word of God. So as we go through this passage today, I want to back up just a little bit as I always do and look, look briefly just at what we looked at last week in the return of the unclean spirit. The main part of Christ's teaching last week is that being freed, it's very important that we get this, is that being freed from demonic possession or, or any type of oppression is, is not enough. It's not enough just to be freed. We also have to respond in faith in Jesus Christ. There can be a void left in our life, and that void can be filled by anything. And what, Who do we want in our life, in our spirit? We want Jesus Christ to be in our spirit. That's the point he was making, that Jesus was making about that. We don't want to be continue to be susceptible to evil spirits uh, taking them over again because then Jesus says a worse condition can occur than before. There must be a response of faith to the miracle. Uh, his point was is that exorcism only benefits when one responds to God. That's what he means by that. When he, when he freed the man from the, from the mute and the blind spirit, then you had all those come and some accused him of doing the miracle by the power of Beelzebul, the power of Satan. Uh, you just had all of these different, different things happen, and you had one group that wanted him to do another sign. That's what today's passage is about. And so Christ's point in that is, is that when, when Jesus does something miraculous in your life, don't stop there, right? Don't stop there. Follow him and invite him into your life and worship him and serve him forever. Because if you don't, you will, you will serve some spirit. You will serve some spirit, and that is the point he was making, So this morning, we have some verses where Christ gives a scathing indictment upon the crowds following him. Uh, Jesus will actually call them evil. And why is that? It's because they were seeking a sign when Jesus had already given them plenty of signs, specifically in this exorcism from this man that had the mute and blind demon. Now, as you think about sign-seeking, as I think about sign-seeking... It, it really does seem harmless enough. I mean, what does it hurt to want to see a sign? That's the way I think about that, probably the way you may think about that. But that is not the way Jesus sees it, and that's what the, mo- that's what the most important part of this is today. Jesus doesn't see it as harmless. Jesus sees seeking a sign not only as harmful, but he sees it as what? Evil. That's right. Right. Jesus says seeking a sign, that this wicked generation seeking a sign is actually evil. It's very difficult, to, very difficult for my ears to hear that. I would say, just personally speaking as I've read this passage and studied for you today, I would say that it drifts into the same realm of wanting to be entertained by religious activity. Not really wanting to understand the deeper meaning of what is going on and how it affects my life, but to get some type of, of feeling from it and some type of, of entertainment and not wanting to truly submit my life to the authority of the word of God or to Jesus. Uh, that's what I think when I, when I look into this. I mean, Jesus is not a magician. He's not a carnival show. He is the Messiah sent from God and his miracles are not for entertainment nor are they a show. They are for one purpose and that is to prove that he is the Messiah sent from God. And once you have experienced one of his miraculous acts, that should be enough. Amen? That should be enough. Place your faith in him as Messiah and follow him in obedience and worship. It's very interesting that Jesus treats sign-seeking and demonic accusations seriously. You may even say, based on the text, that he treats sign-seeking more harshly because... In the passage we read today, he pulls two Old Testament cases to prove the fact that who he is and what he has done is evidence enough compared to the Old Testament testimony. One quote that I read that I've just loved, I thought I would read this to you. Sign-seeking in itself is much more subtle, and because it is less alarming, therefore more widespread. In seeking the sign, one seeks something other than Jesus. One seeks something more spiritual. And how could there be anything more spiritual than Jesus? Amen? The longing for a more spiritual revelation is the mother of all heresies. The original temptation of the the serpent no longer simply to know God, but to be God. Then how long before we want to be able to perform the signs? I thought that was a very wise thought in that. So join me in Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 32. And then we also, the, uh, the parallel passage is Matthew chapter 12. And I'll make one reference to that, and then we will plow forward with Luke. So join me in the sign of Jonah in Luke chapter 11, verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, "This generation is an evil generation." Wow, how do you think that goes over in today's culture? Amen. Not not pretty, not well at all. I would say, not well at all. But there, there it is. Your Bible, my Bible is in red, and it says Jesus called that generation an evil generation. We would be called judgmental. We would be called harsh. We would be called out out of touch. We would be called narrow, maybe even bigoted. But Jesus says this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." that Jesus uses to completely crush this idea of sign seeking. Now, the primary difference in these accounts of Matthew and Luke is that Matthew speaks to Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, which points forward to Christ's resurrection. Luke, if you noticed, did not do that, although it is certainly true. I'm not knocking that. Luke points to the element. Of response. It's very important that you see that because that is the track he is taking on this event. It is the response to Jesus. Not calling him by the power of Beelzebul. And not seeking more signs from him. But actually responding in faith to Jesus. To the preaching of the word of God. That's what he's pointing to. So let's look at verse 29. Sign seeking exposes disbelief. That is so hard for me to stomach. I don't know about you, but it's just so hard because, you, you know, you, we look for signs. We, God, just give me a sign, right? And then I'll believe. But Jesus says that is, that's not the way we need to think about this. We need to think about this to take Jesus at his word and not have to have evidence or a sign. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. <laughs> you know, throughout my life, um, you know, you hang around some of the older the older men, and some of the older men, what, what, what some of the things the older men in my life would say, man, this generation, <laughs> right? Boy, I'll tell you what, this generation, I don't know what we're going to do with this generation. I mean, when I, when I read that 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 verse, and I, I mean that just my father's face popped up in my head, and all I could hear him talk about was how this, you know, this generation, what are we going to do with this generation, your generation, and lo and behold, here Jesus is doing the exact same thing. We're not the only ones that are critical of different generations. Christ, Christ Himself was critical of different generations. He says this generation is evil. And why does he say that? Specifically, because they seek a sign. It happened first, back in verse 14. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Verse 16, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Then it happens again in this passage, Matthew tells us, by the Pharisees and the scribes. So it seems that everyone, the Jewish leadership and the people, were seeking another sign from Jesus, wanting a larger miracle from him. So let's be sure that we get what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that the people around him who just witnessed the miracle of the exorcism fell into two groups. One group was those that were accusing him of being Beelzebul, that what Jesus has done has been done by the power of Satan, the prince of demons, and Jesus categorically denies that and does so wonderfully. The second group is that group that is asking for another sign. They don't deny what Jesus has done, but they want to see another sign, perhaps in their minds greater than what was just done as proof that he is who he claims to be. And don't miss this. Jesus says that mentality in that generation or this generation is evil. Not just bad, not just harmful, but evil. They want an additional sign. I mean, how many signs do they need? We're 11 chapters into the book of Luke. We know that not every miracle he did is recorded, so we know he did many, many more than we know. So just how many miracles do you need to see? Have you not heard of all the other miracles that he did prior to this time? Surely we know word has gotten around about all these other miracles, but they want another sign. So what is going on here, what is going on here is that they wanted Jesus to perform for them specifically. Hearing dozens of other testimonies from people all over Judea was simply not good enough. They wanted Jesus to perform some greater sign for them specifically. Do you remember another time that a group hinted at that with him when he preached there? Nazareth. Nazareth had done that. And then Jesus totally rebuked them by saying that the Gentiles have more faith than they had. And then after he told them that, they drove him out of the synagogue and tried to throw him off a ravine and kill him, but somehow he gets away. So this is not an uncommon problem in Jesus' life. But they want to know for themselves, they want to see for themselves. So in Jesus' perfect, incredible, wonderful, brilliant style, he gives them a sign, but I can promise you it was not the sign that they wanted, right? It wasn't the sign that they wanted. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. I bet you when he said, I will give you nothing but the sign of Jonah, I bet you their faces fell. I bet you they turned and looked at each other. I bet you a ton of people just outright walked off. Jonah? What does, what does Jonah have to do with anything you're doing today? is probably exactly what they thought. The sign of Jonah. Not only that, but but probably gave them negative memories because Jonah was actually a prophet for the northern kingdom and made them think about the northern kingdom and Samaria. They probably thought to themselves, what is Jesus talking about? This is ridiculous. Jonah, the sign of Jonah. Well, whenever Jesus uses an Old Testament prophet as an example, what is it wise to do? Revisit the story of Jonah because he is making a huge claim about that. So, what we do is we revisit Jonah. Now, here's one thing to remember about Jonah, and this is very, very important, and one of the things that this passage in Matthew excuse me, this passage in Luke and Matthew completely destroys. For years and years and years and years, something called higher textual criticism has always said that Jonah was not a real prophet. Who's ever heard that before? Raise your hand. Right. Who is here using the story of Jonah as a testimony in the scripture? Is Jonah a real prophet? Yes. Yes. So whenever somebody says that to you, all you have to do is say, okay, well, if he wasn't, then Jesus is a what? A liar, and we can't depend, anything, we can't depend on anything the Bible says. So, first of all, textual criticism can go and jump in the lake because Jonah's real, because Jesus Christ himself said he was real. So, Jonah is a real prophet. Real prophet. So, this one use of Jonah by Jesus proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was a real prophet. Now, Jonah himself was the son of Amittai of Gath Hefer. That, that name has always made me laugh. I don't know why, Gath Hefer. I just laugh at it when I hear it. I have no idea. Do y'all laugh when you hear that? Okay, I, just, I got something in my mind, but I'm not going to share it. Early in his life, God had used Jonah to prophesy to Jer- Jeroboam II in Israel in 2 Kings 14 to expand Israel's border. So we know other than that and this story and Jesus' use of him, we know nothing about Jonah the prophet. Nothing except for the fact that he existed, he prophesied, and that the story that involves him is true. So when we look at the book of Jonah, why would Jesus use Jonah and say, the only sign I will give you is the sign of Jonah? Other than the fact that Matthew says three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. We know that. But Luke is, Luke is giving us something something different. So let's review the high points of the book and rekindle Jonah in our minds. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, Jonah was one of my favorite stories out of the Bible. Can I get a witness? Something about that fish and him being swallowed and threw up on the shores. I I just love that. I just dream. Maybe one day God will let me be swallowed by a fish. Except just not a great white. Amen? Just not a great white. So let's review the story. So, So the book starts with Jonah being called of God. And he says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil, their evil has come up before me. Now, did Jonah obey God? No, he did not. He did not obey him. In fact, not only did he not go, he went the complete opposite direction. The Bible says he fled. He went to Joppa and he hopped on a boat that was headed to Tarsus, which was all the way in what we know of modern day Spain. That's all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. So he was in complete, utter rebellion of God, against God. Not a good place to be as his prophet. Would you amen that? Amen. Amen. So what happened next? You know the story. A severe storm came upon that boat that began to break the ship apart. Jonah goes down into the bellows of the boat and does what? Goes to sleep. In the middle of a storm, running from God, goes to sleep. How he had, that, how he had the peace enough to go to sleep, I have, I have absolutely no idea. The captain of the ship finds him down there and basically gets on to him and tells him to pray to his God that his God may, may save us. Then the captain and the crew cast lots. Okay, now, I'm not going to explain that, but just, you know what having, like, drawing straws is, right? You ever drawn straws before? One, there's one straw in there that's real short, and if you get that one, then, then, then you're the one that has to do the job or, you know, whatever. And so, in this case, they drew lots, and Jonah got the short straw. And they believed immediately, immediately, that this guy was the reason why this storm was raging outside, and they were all about to die. And they start asking him questions. Who are you? Where are you from? Who is your God? Who are you? And then Jonah tells them the truth. I am the prophet of the most high God, Yahweh. And then what do they do? They totally freak out because they know he's running from God and they know that he's the reason why this storm has come upon that ship. So Jonah, Jonah tells them something really, really sacrificial, amen? He tells them to do what? Throw him overboard. I mean, that's pretty bold. Throw him overboard. Well, the crew, the crew, declined in the beginning, "Oh no, we're not going to do that to you,'re not gonna. So, so they try real hard, and they row they, they, they try to endure the storm, they try to make it through the storm, but it keeps getting worse and keeps getting worse. And so they finally pray to the Lord for forgiveness. God, please, please forgive us for what we're about to do. And they chunk Jonah overboard into the raging sea. And the way the story reads, the second that happened, what happened to the storm? It ceased. It ceased. So Jonah is in the sea, we would assume, sinking, trying to swim, whatever, trying to make it on his own as the ship goes out of view. And the Bible says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and he was in the belly of the fish three days And three nights. No question that points to the resurrection. But again, that's not where Luke is going. While Jonah was in the belly of the fish, obviously, I would say, thinking he was going to what? Die. Comes to a place based on the scripture of repentance. Not going to read it all to you, but I'll just give you this one verse at the very end. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to you. To the Lord. And about that time, the Lord spoke. The fish vomits Jonah back out on dry land. And if you look at a map and you look about the place where, where, where you would estimate that Jonah was maybe thrown overboard and where the bank of Nineveh is, it, it's, it's a long way in the ocean. So I think part of what happened was, was, it, was it, that fish came and swallowed him and then basically transported him to where he was supposed to be. It's hard to think of a great fish as a taxi cab but that's exactly what happened right the, the fish took him took him to Nineveh and spit him out on the bank so then God's word comes to Jonah arise and go to Jonah I mean go to Nineveh I'm sorry call out against it and what I tell you to say, Jonah goes to Nineveh and calls out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what happens? Man, don't y'all wish I would just preach that long, amen? One little sentence, one little verse. Also, we also wish everybody would repent in the same fashion, amen? <laughs> that, is, that is a miracle in itself. So this, this repentance is, is far-reaching through all of the empire, and it's so far-reaching that it gets to the king's ears, and the king writes an edict for the whole land to repent in sackcloth and ashes. And it says this in the Bible. He says, Who knows? Turn from their evil ways, because who knows? God may turn from his anger against us so that we may not perish. So Jonah's message is heard God brings repentance to this evil city, Nineveh, and the whole country turns from their wicked ways. Hallelujah, amen. And what's Jonah's response? He gets mad. He gets mad about it. Because he doesn't want those godless Gentiles saved. That's exactly right. He doesn't want those godless Gentiles saved. Christ says, this generation... Is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, think about the story, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. All right, let's move on. I'm going to come back. We're going to tie it all together at the very end, so hang on to that. Verse 31. Take a swig, I'm getting dry up here. Verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Okay, we've had we've had the Old Testament example. Jesus, again, is condemning this sign-seeking from the Jews. We've had the Old Testament example of Jonah and running from God, finally being obedient after the fish swallows him, spits him up at the bank, he preaches, and they all repent. We've had that one. Now he goes to the Queen of Sheba and talks about the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South. So the Queen of the South... we all know is the queen of Sheba, okay? How many of you have read this story before? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, it's, it's probably not one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, but it should be because who's using it? Jesus, <laughs> right, right. And who put it in there? God did, exactly. So as far as we know, it is thought, this place, Sheba, is thought to have been located on the Arabian Peninsula near its southernmost coast in the Boot. You all know where the Boot is, right? The Arabian Peninsula, okay. That, that's where this place is said to be. And if it were not for this story recorded in the Bible, her existence probably would have never been known. It's amazing what the Bible can do for us. There's no other historical record of her. So the queen, this queen of Sheba, way, way, way down yonder, in in the south of the Arabian Peninsula, she hears of all of the incredible things about Israel, about Solomon, about the kingdom, most importantly about his what? Wisdom. She hears all that, And she wants, she becomes curious about this man and about this kingdom. And so she wants to travel from the southern tip of Arabia all the way up to Solomon's temple. You know how many miles that is? 1,200 miles. 1,200 miles. No jet planes, no airplanes. What was she riding on probably? Camel. How would you like to go 1,200 miles on camel? Can I get a witness? Not me, Willis Jeep, any day, but not a camel, not a camel. So she travels all the way to Jerusalem, and the purpose is to test him with hard questions concerning the name of the Lord. So she came to Jerusalem, I'm reading for, uh, from First Kings chapter 10, to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, this is straight out of the scripture, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. Then it says Solomon withheld nothing from her and answered all of her questions that she had about God, about the temple, about life, everything. He answered all of her questions. In verse 4, 1 first, first Kings chapter 10 verse 4, And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, The food on his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. Get this. The Bible says this, literally says this. There was no more breath in her. Doesn't mean she died. That's not what that means. It means that she was what? Breathless. Breathless. She was so overwhelmed in awe and wonder over what God was doing in the Israelite kingdom that the queen of Sheba, and I can promise you that an Arabian queen, was she rich? Was she powerful? Absolutely. But she was breathless. After hearing Solomon's testimony about the wisdom and seeing everything she saw, it took her breath away. She was so impressed. Then she says the report that she heard was true, but she says this, and I love this. I wonder if this is where we, where we get this saying is out of the Bible, because a lot of stuff that's passed around comes straight out of the Scripture. We don't even realize it. But she says the story she had heard only told half of the greatness. I wonder if that's where we go. You don't know the what? Yeah, you don't know the half of it. I wonder if that came from the Queen of Sheba. Wouldn't that be interesting? I bet it probably did. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Everyone around you is happy. Blessed be the Lord God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king... A hundred and twenty talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Queen of Sheba, Southern Arabia, twelve hundred miles, hears rumors of what's going on in Israel. And she is curious enough to learn about this that she travels 1,200 miles to sit at the feet of Solomon and hear him speak and to experience the kingdom of God in Israel. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater then Solomon is here. Jesus says, I am the embodiment of God's wisdom. I was born a Jew, lived among you, healed you, loved you, performed miracles in full view of your eyes, and you say I do it by the power of the the demonic and ask for more signs. The queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment against you and condemn you because something greater than Solomon is here. She traveled 1,200 miles just to hear God's wisdom. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation. And condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. They, those that listened to the preaching of Jonah and repented, they will stand over you in judgment. The Queen of Sheba will stand over you in judgment because she was curious enough to come and listen and listened and believed. So, is this verse 32? Is Jesus hating on Jonah's preaching? No, he's not hating on Jonah's preaching. Let me read that again. You're looking at me kind of weird. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So my question to you was, are they hating on Jonah's preaching? No, Jesus is not hating on his preaching. Jesus went all the way back to the Old Testament to make a very important comparison with Jonah and this is it. Jonah performed no miracles, none, not himself. God did through him, but not him. I mean, I would say living in the belly of a fish for all that time was a miracle, but that wasn't Jonah's doing, that was God's. Jonah had a bad attitude. Could you amen that? Jonah had a bad attitude, no doubt. Jonah wanted judgment to fall on Nineveh. There ain't no doubt about that. He didn't want to go, ran from it. God forced him to go. He finally went. He finally preached. They repented. Then he got mad. And then God sent him a tree, and he got mad about that. The dude just had a bad attitude, period. Yet, that generation of Ninevites, pagan and godless known for viciousness in their conquest, heard the word of God from this reluctant, disobedient prophet and repented all the way to the king. But Christ's own people, the Jews, who know him, who have known him since he was a child, who have seen him or at least heard of him doing all types of incredible miracles, especially healing and returning sight to the blind, they accuse him of having the power of Beelzebub and seek after another sign. Nineveh got none of that and believed, repented and believed. The Ninevites would rise up in judgment against the unbelieving Jews. Though he be in the midst of them, Jesus... The Ninevites would rise up in judgment against them and condemn their lack of belief and repentance. The Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, but here is preaching that far exceeds that of Jonah, is more powerful and awakening and threatens a much more ruin than that of Jonah, and yet none are startled by it to run from their evil ways as that generation of Ninevites did. Do you see the comparison of what Jesus is doing here? It is powerful. It is powerful. He is saying that the pagans' response, the pagan response, the pagan response, godless, no covenant, no God, completely steeped in idolatry, their response was more pure and more active and more true than Jesus' own people. They didn't accept it. They blamed it on the power of Beelzebul, and they started seeking more Signs. So two groups of Gentiles have proven wiser and more accepting of God than this current generation of Israelites. And Jesus uses Israel's own history to rebuke the current rejection. So the, the question that we need to leave ourselves with today, the question that, the question that uh, I think all of us have to grapple with it at some point or another. Is, is your salvation enough? Is it? Is being saved enough? Is knowing that you are safe and secure, saved in Christ, is that enough for you? Or do you need signs and wonders and signs and wonders and signs and wonders to continue to affirm your faith? Because Jesus is going to say to you that Jonah, that the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba will stand over you in judgment. That's what he would say. Have faith. You don't need anything else. Nothing. But belief and faith in Jesus Christ. You don't need skywriting. You don't have to have miracles. Your faith in Jesus should be enough. No matter what happens to you or befalls you in your life, knowing that you are his, should be enough. Should be enough. But no, 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 man. We want action, we want, we want production, we want response. We want God to come in and do miraculous things in our life or he ain't there. And I'm telling you that the most miraculous thing that he will do for you has already been done and done on a cross called Calvary 2,000 years ago. And when he came out of that tomb three days later. I love it when God does great things in my life and he does great things in my life all the time. But most of the time, it's not walking on water. Most of the time, it's not something miraculous. Most of the time, it's one of his people that reaches out to me and helps me in my time of need. Or it's me driving an old truck that starts to hiccup and act like it's going to quit running, and I go, Dear God, Jesus, please get me home. And somehow it gets me there. Or I'm broke down on the side of the road, and somebody pulls over to help me, and I know, could this be one of those angels God said I could entertain unknowing it, not knowing it? Stop looking for these signs. Stop looking for them and trust Jesus. Because if you get hung up in that, you will look at persecution and you will look at hardships as not coming from God. And the scripture clearly says they come straight from his hand. And you play right into the prosperity gospel preacher's lies when you believe that. Every apostle, as far as we know, was martyred except John. And he lived to be an old man on on the Isle of Patmos. Stop looking for them. Read the word of God. Obey the word of God. Humble yourself before him. Your name doesn't have to be up in lights. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be up in lights at all. Be a humble, humble servant of God. doesn't matter. Lay your life out for him. Lay it out. I, am, I don't understand, Christians today, how we're looking for notoriety, we're looking for popularity, we're looking for fame, we're trying to build a name for ourselves. We talk about my ministry, my ministry, my ministry, my ministry. It ain't my ministry. Whose ministry is it? Jesus Christ's ministry is whose it is. Shelby Hazard one day is going to drop dead. You realize that? And guess what's going to happen to his church It's going to keep right on trucking into the future. You know why? Because somebody else is going to step right up there next, probably a whole lot better than me, and continue to take it straight on forward. So don't get all bent out of shape about yourself. God's going to replace you one day when you die. Amen? Serve him humbly, lovingly, sacrificially. Stop looking for all the excitement. The world needs to see brothers and sisters in Christ that will get down in the trenches with them and get dirty and sweaty and nasty and go see them at two o'clock in the morning when they're in pain and love them and help them. They don't care about our fancy cars and our fancy clothes, they want to see salt and light. They want to see people who believe what they preach. And who doesn't fall apart at the first sign of trouble, but can endure it because they know that somehow some way this did not come at me without God fil- fil- filtering through God and he is going to make me better because of it. You believe that? You better because that's what the Bible says. The preaching of Jonah, the preaching of Jesus. Let us not let us not look for a sign. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? Are you a a sign seeker? Is that where your hope is? Is that where your faith is in some kind of sign? Or is it in the Savior that died on the cross and was raised three days later? Is that where your faith is? That's what Jesus' point was. Let us pray. Father, my heart's racing. I thank you for helping me, because Lord, I just, I really deal I really deal with with worthiness and have for a long time to be your preacher. I just do. I did before I came, and you know that. And I don't know how long you're going to keep me here. I don't know. But I'm willing to do it until you take me out. Father, help us learn from this passage today what Jesus is trying to say. That when he does something for us, don't don't, don't continue to want to see this miraculous over and over and over and over again, Lord. He saved us. He died on the cross, came out of the grave. What more do we need? What more do we want? Nothing. We have it all. We have it all in him. The queen of Sheba saw that. The people of Nineveh understood that. They knew the story. They knew what had happened to Jonah. They knew what they were dealing with. They heard. They repented and they believed. So, Father, help us as this wicked generation to believe and to trust and to step forward and to follow. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.